so we have been gone for a rather good portion of time, as you can probably tell. Uh, however, we are back. Uh, I posted a quick little, I guess, update sort of type episode yesterday for you guys to sort of have a premise of what's going on. But today, for this week, we are purely focusing on the second part of the Balleroy Mansion, a uh, little mini in-dive, I don't know what to really call it, it's not really a mini-series type thing, but yeah, it's been a long time coming, and I don't really want to discuss too much ahead of time, I just sort of want to get into it because I feel bad for making you guys wait for so long for this part two, so let's get into it. As for anyone who might be new who's just joining us right now, uh, part one of the Balleroy Mansion uh, little episode series thing was primarily focused on the hauntings and paranormal mishaps that are associated with the residents. And today, in part two, I as I mentioned at the end of part one, is going to focus on pretty much everything else. It's going to be focusing a bit more on the history of the family who owned it, what happened to those supposed haunted objects, and a bit more of, I guess, some info on the main players within these hauntings. And as a quick disclaimer, only because I don't typically talk about things that are not primarily uh, supernatural based, uh, all of this information that I'm going to be providing you is compiled from various sources, but ultimately it has been arranged within my own interpretation of the events and history as I've been able to establish it. So don't take any of this as 100% indefinite fact in certain regards. Some definitely because they are coming from you know, like government reports and court documents. But for the most part, I do, uh, I do recommend uh, doing some of your own research and looking into some of the people in relation to this story if you do want to sort of make your own opinion on some of the things that we are going to be learning about. So as seen in episode one of this location, George Easby and his family are essentially the primary focus of the Balleroy Mansion and its history, with George having pretty much the longest time spent within the home. To give a better perspective of who the Easbys are, think of the sort of typical image of old money. Perhaps not the wealthiest family within the entire world, but they are still extremely connected with rich roots and a rather deep history that, as I mentioned in the very first episode, has claims to the Easby Abbey back in the 12th century and even a general in the Civil War by the name of George Meade Easby, who George, who we're going to be talking about today, is named after. But the history of the Easby family continues even further, especially within America's lifespan and the Philadelphia region's history. The family also claims to have connections with at least seven signers of the Declaration of Independence, and George's mother, Henrietta, who we talked about last episode, can even track her heritage back to the ship called the Welcome during the same voyage in 1682 that brought William Penn himself over into the New World and his new territory, Pennsylvania. George himself, though, was born in 1918, being only seven years younger than the home itself in which he would soon grow up in. We already went through the early death of George's younger brother, Stephen, in 1931 in Episode 1, 
And eventually, several years later, uh, would come the passing of his mother and then eventually his father due to old age. This leaves a good portion of the house's occupancy to solely be within George's grasp. So a good part of the history and a lot of the hauntings, all the stuff that we were talking about, it all really comes from George. And we're going to talk a bit about his adult life from this point onwards. So coincidentally, George studied illustration during um, this time at college at the University Arts here in Philadelphia. And I say coincidentally because I actually myself considered applying to this school when I was uh, leaving high school. However, I just didn't go down that route. From here, though, his career actually became rather colorful. During this time, World War II had been kicking off and George was eventually drafted into the army. He served by helping with air patrols on the Atlantic coast, and once the war ended, he went back to picking up his creative skills, and he became a cartoonist for a good portion of time. And he even took part in some more, I guess you could probably call them B or C level Hollywood films. And here in Philadelphia, he was even a popular radio host, and for 25 years, he actually served in the U.S. State Department as an advisor of the fine arts. People mention his work in the State Department a lot uh, with podcasts and stuff like that, but I had to really look for what specifically he did. People made it out to sound as though he did a lot more crazy stuff, but he you know, he's, he's within the arts still. So he really bounced around a lot during this time, and he really put a lot of experience under his belt, is essentially what I'm trying to get at. So all this time, too, George has become a rather prolific collector of objects and antiquities. Probably not too surprising, as the Easby family had already been known to gather historical items, especially if they are in relation to the family itself. George gathered a lot of fine art, items belonging to his rich family that were not already acquired, and he even got himself several antique cars. In fact, it was George who collected several of the supposedly haunted items, such as the death chair that is linked to Amanda, that some claim to have been owned by a Napoleon, although there's no real solid proof there. He also was the one who gathered the grandfather clock that Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, seems to be linked to and possibly, possibly, the family heirloom, although we don't know the specific one, that may have brought the old monk spirit that discussed about in episode 1, who may have some connections to the Easby Abbey back in Europe. So George lived alone in the home from the years 1969, after the passing of his father, up until December of 2005, when he himself passed away at the age of 87. Due to multiple organ failures and after being placed into hospice care, he was later buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery here in Philadelphia, another location we discussed about, and a place that I did not know he was actually buried at. And it is also something that should be mentioned uh, that George's health, especially in his later years, is something that we are going to talk about in a moment when it becomes a little more relevant. But really, for the most if not like most major thing you should really take away, is that uh, George was generally known as a rather generous and overly friendly individual, kind of like that cool neighbor who hands out like the best candy on Halloween 
or has the best holiday lights up in the wintertime, stuff like that. He's just really known as like a nice guy. Although this guy has a legit haunted house, and um, he also often offered tours at the time, uh, no one surrounding him really seemed to mind too much, but these tours are no longer being offered. Uh, the house is now privately owned by another family, so they are, don't really want to have people running into their house all the time at all hours and um, just sort of going through about their stuff. And it is also good to mention that uh, a lot of the items are no longer there. So most of the appeal really came from George and his collection. And now we're going to talk about George's health. Um, So it's sort of a strange, sort of got strange towards the final years of his life. And I personally don't really know how much of this was directly in correlation to, or I should say, how much of this has direct correlation to all of the ghost sightings, especially the later ones. Because a lot of the ghost reports that you hear about, um, they do come from earlier stuff, but I don't know how prolonged these effects were going on uh, with his mind, and I don't know how many stories came out after this sort of stuff could have began. So just keep that in mind. Learning this definitely got me a little curious because especially some people who were close to George claim to have never had experiences. So it does sort of muddy the water a little bit, but there are also, as we're going to mention later, there are still a lot of people, aside from George, who do have or or did have um, sightings. And we mentioned that in episode one, and there's going to be some supporting evidence for some of the people involved in that later on. So, George Easby was, for the most part, living a pretty healthy life. Again, he was in the army, he traveled a lot, and he was an extremely active individual. But during his last few years, this sort of activity began to die down. It is noted through Dr. Paul Mook, who was George's active physician during these years. George Mook stated, or sorry, Dr. Mook stated, that he noticed a change in uh, George's mental state during the year um, 2000 and onwards. This sort of report continued for the next four years, uh, in which he believed that George's had began to develop dementia during his elder years. In October of 2001, a letter by a neurologist by the name of Dr. Lawrence Smith seemed to also support these developing theories, as he had also submitted suspicion that George Mead Easby uh, was actually developing chronic dementia. Again, though, I'm not entirely clear on how specific this condition was, because not a whole lot of information is out about it. Again, it's not super public. It's not something that was really announced a lot. A lot of this I get from court documents. When it really began to kick in, though, um, I don't know specifics. I don't know, again, how much this actually affected George's life and potentially some of the haunting stuff. I do know that it did essentially cripple him towards the later years. There are some more interesting events that did occur in relation to this potential condition in George's later life. They are not entirely related to this episode, so I will say definitely look into it, and it is by far way more interesting than I had ever really thought. Um, There is a 
document that I came across. Um, it's a public document that I will be linking for easier access, and it is going to be posted over on the Patreon for free for anyone to look at. And it comes from the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia. It is the Orphan's Court Division, and it is in relation to the estate of George uh, Gordon Mead Easby and his final will and testament. Because again, during these final years, he was suffering from developing mental uh, deterioration. And he and his live-in, I forget what the actual term is. He comes up later, I think. George had a live-in, I guess, partner, essentially. They didn't, I guess, essentially get married, although I do believe they may have tried to in a different state or something like that. He, his partner, I believe his name was Thomas or Timothy. I don't, I, I don't know why I don't write him down in this section. Um, but the this document and the dispute that's going on with the estate, or I should say, was going on with the estate, really just unravels with those two. Um, it unravels with the accountant that George had, who was he was good friends with for years and years ahead of time. Um, other family members, all these like crazy things. And it gives a lot of information on either party's side, you you know, what's happening with George during these times. It dates back, I believe, into like the 90s, maybe even 80s, as like the timeline of what's going on with George and um, his partner. And that, again, doesn't really have too much like weight into it. You only really need to know about his mental health and this era to really understand i guess the battle Roy mansion and then like the ghost sightings and stuff like that so the rest of it i was going to mention but also the document's like 40 pages long so there's a lot of information there's a lot of history that again isn't fully related but is really 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 interesting and if you want to learn more about george and you want to learn more about his life definitely go check it out again i will be posting it over on the patreon for free it's just open uh public post but the link will also be linked within the show note resource uh document moving on from george's mental health uh, something you know that's a little bit of a damper we're gonna move on to something um that's a bit more interesting that i myself sort of kind of flip-flopped i went from being a you'll understand so this is going to be the validity of the sightings and also Judith Richardson Heems or Himes, I believe it's pronounced. So when it comes to the ghost sightings, I want to take a step back and really figure out how can we look at them from a third party perspective. As I have stated several times before, or many if not most of the major claims and sightings have come directly from George and those very closely related to him. Aside from George, you have his father, who claimed on his deathbed to his son that he had also fully been aware of the spirits of the Balleroy's halls. More specifically, he even claimed to have seen his wife's spirit on several occasions. Others who were involved were close friends of George, those who worked with George at the Balleroy, and on occasion during tours of the mansion, you might have guests who report odd events. However, most of these are in relation to cold spots, negative feelings, and potential sightings of the ectoplasmic mist in the blue room, although I'm going to maybe talk about that in a different thing, but nothing to the level of what George experiences or what employees or their people close to him experience. People on the outside generally just have generalized feelings, and I do want to preface this by saying that 
at this time during the tours, either a staff member or George himself is the one who is providing the tour. And they are giving a history of the location. They're giving the history of the items there. They're sort of setting a mood. It gets very much emphasized like, hey, this is the haunted room. That's the chair that's killed several people. We tape it off so that you can't touch it. Like, There's no real, I guess, time for people to really develop their own sensation before being told sort of how they should feel. But again, that's not really on them. It's a tour, so obviously you should expect that. Um, But with this, though, I do want to transition into one other person that was mentioned uh, in the last week, or not last week, the last episode, that has a rather deep relation to George and several of the reports that come from the Balleroy. And this is Judith Richardson Heems, the psychic that George brought into the home and hosted several seances with and soon became very friendly with. So, backstory on Judith, she is a local psychic medium who offered readings of people's auras, past life regressions, communicating with the departed, and even reading the supposed, you know, people's futures. She worked within and the surrounding areas of Philadelphia, and she was also very prominent down in Newark, uh, Delaware, which is not too far away, uh, where she had her own little practice. But it was with her connections to George Easby and the Balleroy Mansion along with other notable, uh, I guess, yeah, just notable people in the uh, Chestnut Hill area uh, that she really became known, I guess, like name brand in a way. And with her time spent in the Bowery, Judith helped host three individual seances in addition to some personal readings and general spirit communication. During one of these seances, Judith witnessed a man moving down the stairs from her description George recognized the man as his uncle, who had passed away in the home some years earlier. I did not actually know about this one until researching Judith herself, so I did not actually mention this death nor sighting in the first part episode, because really no one talks about it unless you look into Judith herself. Uh, During another one of these seances, there was a skeptical reporter who decided to join in the ritual. This is when suddenly a voice claiming to be that of the poet John Milton began to speak through Judith to uh, about a letter that the reporter had received from the governor of Rhode Island. The voice was describing the letter so much to a T that the reporter claimed that he felt Milton trying to take over his own body and he left the house being a believer rather than a skeptic. As mentioned in the first part of the uh, of this little series, Judith is also primarily responsible for nearly all, if not every one, of George's late mother's sightings, Henrietta. And these don't come in the form of, you know, psychic reading or psychic readings or um like sightings of an apparition, but We did mention that with Judith's help, George was able to discover several lost items and family heirlooms that had been hidden about throughout the Balleroy for several years after his mother's passing. Uh, Again, listen to the first part. I talk a lot more in depth about this one. Um, One did take place during a seance, but Judith also had a lot of moments in which she would just enter the Balleroy and would have... I guess she would hear and sort of see and just sort of experience Henrietta in a lot of ways. 
and she would oftentimes lead them to an item that no one was aware of. So the third and the final seance that Judith held within the home was both the shortest of the three and most certainly the strangest of them all. So while channeling the spirits, Judith had such a violent reaction that she actually ended up losing consciousness. She just passed out. And if it were not for the other people who were at the table and like participating with her and you know being a part of the seance, Judith would have fallen face first into a bunch of lit candles that they were utilizing during the practice. She ended up being okay, although she did need to be carried out of the home. After which, Judith's doctor actually warned her not to enter the Balleroy ever again, and she took this warning rather seriously, good on her, as afterwards she never would step foot back into the home. Now whether or not Judith's claims as a psychic um, are founded, I'm not entirely clear uh, as true or false, especially without having met or interacted with her directly. She is, however, the center of a rather infamous case, uh, this being Judith Himes vs. Temple University Hospital, which is completely focused on the me- medical malpractice complaint that Judith filed against the hospital, which resulted in her inability to work. Now, this is not directly related to the Balleroy and like Judith's relation to that. However, it does bring up some interesting sources and potential witnesses that could possibly support the fact that Judith is legit, that she is an actual psychic. And I do want to mention this, um, I actually, no, never mind, I will mention it later on, because it does come up, because the media (laughs) that cover this did not do a great job. Uh, I should say, entitling. So if you'd like to learn more detailed uh, history of what happened to the case, one of the sources that I have attached in the show note links and resources has a really, really fabulous timeline of pretty much each and every event and even helps to clarify some of the misinterpretations that tended to occur within the media uh, that really just made a frenzy over this story. So the source is from uh, sciencecorruption.com. I know the name seems a bit off-putting, but again, they remained extremely impartial to the events themselves, uh, and they very much were just research-focused and um, trying to compile an intact timeline of the facts and the correct events. Again, that link will be in the show notes for you to go check it out. I use them to really, like clarify certain things that happened with other sources that I had found. But with this case comes witnesses and testimonies, again this being the case of Judith Himes versus Temple University Hospital, and these testimonies would come as Judith had to essentially clarify to the court that her ability to make an income was damaged. Up until now, we've only discussed Judith's ability through closed-door sessions and seances with people who were more or less already extremely open to the possibility uh, or were actively looking for a source of said activity. Here, however, several of the witnesses during the case were actually police officers who had interacted with or directly asked Judith for her assistance. So, for this next little moment, I'm going to read directly from the transcripted summary of the case itself. And again, the full source will be there for you to read. Um, It's actually pretty lengthy, but these are just the transcripts from the the witness um, descriptions. So, I'm just going to read it, and we'll get into it. 
The first witness was Lieutenant Fritzinger, who testified that he had brought pictures of a homicide victim, eight to ten suspects, to the plaintiff. The plaintiff referring to Judith. The plaintiff was able to tell Fritzinger about the victim's lifestyle, their age, and their family. The plaintiff was then provided a detailed description of the manner of the victim's death, identifying a photo of the murderer and advised Fritzinger that the murderer had an extensive criminal record and had previously committed several similar crimes. Fritzinger visited Plaintiff a second time. At this meeting, the plaintiff advised Fritzinger that his wife and father should seek medical attention. Fritzinger convinced his father, who was approximately 73 years of age, to visit the doctors. The doctor discovered that the Fritzinger's father suffered from emphysema and high blood pressure. Mary Fritzinger, the wife of the lieutenant, testified that she sought medical attention and the suggestion of at the suggestion of the plaintiff. She first consulted a gynecologist who performed a urine test and revealed a minor urinary tract infection. Over the next two weeks, she began to feel tired and consulted a family physician who prescribed medication. Her condition worsened, and shortly afterwards, she was admitted to a hospital in order to remove a kidney. The next witness, Special Agent McCormick, testified that he sought the plaintiff's advice in solving five to seven homicide cases. In these occasions, plaintiff provided McCormick with information that corroborated the information that his own office had already obtained. The information later proved to be 80 to 90% accurate. The next witness, Special Agent Raymond H. Shellhammer, testified that he sought the plaintiff's help in finding a missing woman. After viewing a picture of the woman and articles of her clothing, the plaintiff supplied Shellhammer with background information concerning the victim, her husband, and the husband's mistress, and further reported that the husband had then fled to Florida. The husband subsequently returned to the area, and the plaintiff went to visit him at his store, and then the plaintiff told the police that the husband had killed his wife and buried her near his store. Sometime later, the husband was charged with the homicide of his wife. Prior to his trial, he confessed to the crime and led Shellhammer to the spot near his store where his wife's body had been buried. Several years later, in 1978, Shellhammer managed to contact the plaintiff down in Florida and asked her for assistance in finding the body of a police officer who had disappeared after a drowning incident. The plaintiff initially refused to help Shellhammer, explaining that she had developed pain when she performed her psychic activities. Nonetheless, she agreed to perform the reading and later described a boating accident to Shellhammer, describing the area where the officer's body would be found. The body subsequently came to the surface in the area pinpointed by the plaintiff. There are a few more witnesses to the trial that uh, were called to testify. However, throughout the trial, a lot of these were determined to not be as credible or not be credible enough. Like others, such as Lieutenant Fitchinger, they actually tossed out his testimony because he was not willing to identify the source, which provided the initial information that he then ran against Judith's own information. Uh, This was through an anonymous source. And because he did not provide it to the courts, he was not, I guess, lumped into the final verdict. However, his testimony is still there for us to actually look over. 
I couldn't honestly go through Judah's entire history uh, because it would pretty much be its own episode on itself. Uh, but for the most important part to pull away from all of this, from the witness testimonies on her ability, as well as the frequency of her time spent at the Balleroy, is that perhaps she may have some credibility to her sightings. I personally was a bit of a skeptic going on, especially with episode 1. However, upon learning more refined details about the trial and Judah's work, I've now sort of settled in a middle ground. I'm not personally saying that she is, I'm not personally saying she's not. Like I said earlier, I can't really do that unless I actually experience Judah's abilities and meet her and get to know her. I guess maybe have like a personal reading, I don't know. To clarify too, for anyone who may be researching or have had heard of Judith, please realize that there are some small uh, misinformation about her quote-unquote losing her psychic ability due to a CAT scan. So this is actually the reason as to why that malpractice claim came, came to be, because of a CAT scan and because of the procedure of that. Now, a lot of the articles that you will find, a lot of like the news frenzy type things will say local psychic medium loses her ability and all this stuff. Like she never actually lost her ability. Rather, it just became so difficult and so painful to concentrate due to the malpractice that she received. This was due to, I believe, an iodine injection that she was allergic to and immediately like made her throw up she started convulsing she had migraines for weeks and weeks and weeks she was not able to really focus in any regard now however judith himes seems to still be holding readings but since 2009 she has been down in clearwater florida which ironically is right next to where my brother is at college in tampa so i potentially could even get a reading done but I don't know any more recent information on Judith as of right now. 2009 is pretty much the last dated thing that I could find. If anyone actually knows anything, feel free to, I guess, let me know. But for the most part, it seems that she is just living a rather quiet and, um, you know, quiet life down in Florida, which I cannot argue with that. So real quick, I'm going to have a quick little ad read. I generally leave these towards the end of the episodes. However, I'm slowly putting them into the middle because it just sort of makes a little bit more sense. So afterwards, after this quick little read, we are going to be having a discussion on the haunted items and where they ended up today, as well as what's going on with the Balroy Mansion currently. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So here's the portion of the episode that I'm sure most of you have been waiting for, this being what happened to the Balroy within the last several years after George's death. Well, as it would go, most if not all of the furniture and antiques would eventually be sold in, uh, would be sold <laughs> uh, off to auction after 
George's death in 2005. It would seem that most of the spirits that haunted them also seemed to go along with the items, again with that whole relation that they're attached to the item, not the actual location. Some of the items have also been donated to certain museums and foundations, while others had uh, found a new home at the State Department. At this point, after George Easby's death, the property, and in turn the items found within the home, became property of Robert Yergorin. I'm butchering his last name, but this is actually the... I think I called him Tommy earlier. It's Robert. This is the Commonwealth companion that George had, um, the partner, the live-in partner that he had during this period for the last several years. And during this period, same, or I guess I should say, during the period in which they got together, same-sex couples and marriage was not entirely legal. They would have to wait, I believe, it was, what, another like 10 years? 2015? Was it 2015, 2016? I forget. But unfortunately at the time, they were not able to legally marry, so they became a commonwealth partnership which essentially is just the i guess court and the government recognizing that they're living together but they're not quote-unquote married so robert came later into george's life um, and to be perfectly fair based off the information that i've learned i'm not entirely on board with the relationship myself um it feels a bit one-sided uh it feels as though george really really enjoyed robert's company but robert there's not a whole lot that you can find from Robert. And from the third parties that experienced their relationships, Robert didn't seem so grand uh, as George played him up to be. Obviously, I don't know. I've never actually met these people. I've never experienced them. And obviously, George has now passed away. But this hesitation mainly comes from the information that I've received from additional documents that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, this being the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia, uh, the Orphan Court Division, uh, the estate of George Mead Easby, deceased. And this is pretty much an entire court turmoil thing discussing George's will and testament. Because during the latter years of George's life, there just so happened to be a lot of revisions to George's uh, will. And it's questionable whether or not a lot of these had to do with his deteriorating mental health and um, just overall weakness as life went on. Uh, this mainly was sparked as, uh, again, a lot of revisions to the will came, and a lot of them were ultimately placing Robert as the sole proprietor of the estate. Again, you know, you can't really tell. Maybe just George loved Robert that much, or I don't know. Again, I... I'm not 100% sure, but that court um, case definitely made me question things a bit more than I actually was. So, as I stated just now, um, or I should say earlier, the unique items that made the Balleroys so infamous and so notorious for its hauntings uh, were ultimately split apart, and they were sent to several locations, with many being sold uh, at auction, and essentially... This was just a part of liquidizing all the assets of the Easby estate. And for the most part, I cannot locate a lot of the specific items. Most of them, it's disheartening, but, you know, it's I can't find them. Um, however, if I am able to locate any of them, I will be posting that over on social media uh, as a sort of just like update type thing. 
So, what's going on with the Balleroy today? Finally, I would like to... I would like to apply some possible support for the skeptics out there to the claims of the Balroy, as uh, I've been a bit more, I try to be a bit more critical in my research, mainly just to keep myself impartial, because I am sort of, I want to believe, but at the same time I need facts, and it seems, from what I've noticed from my uh, research so far, I've been a bit more leaning towards it being a possibility, so I want to lean for the skeptics out there so as we mentioned uh in the first episode steven's ghost has been spotted uh a few times during the construction of the property during more recent years well these contractors were named david waltz and eddie robinson respectively and the two men claimed to have heard unexplained footsteps and voices while working on the home and to place the cherry on top, they even spotted the figure of a boy on the main staircase at the time in which no one should have been in the home, much less a child. Baltz is quoted as saying it drifted by the window, then all of a sudden there was a cold vibration. Furthermore, those who live around the Balroy have also stepped forward with their own accounts, one being a nearby neighbor named uh, Cassandra Meyer, Cassandra claimed that she had been within the drawing room, this being possibly the blue room, possibly not. Um, It's questionable. Uh, I do know that the drawing room was made for George, but I don't actually know what it, which room it was. And while there, she witnessed the portrait of the Easby's great-grandmother, uh, Elizabeth Bulkney, morph before her eyes. Uh, the neighbor is quoted as saying, There was a misty haze over the face, which slowly changed into that of a man. As for the house today, I'm unable to fully confirm the active owners, but for the most recent owners, I will say that they bought the house in 2015. Or I should say I'm only able to get up to 2015, um, more specifically. So they can very much still be residing there. I don't entirely know. Uh, the rest of this information comes from Billy Penn, which is a small news site under the WHYY news umbrella. Um, and the article was written by Kevin Feely, and the link will be in the show resources below. So the family who moved into the home went by the name of Linus. Uh, they purchased the Balleroy directly from Robert back in 2012, and they moved in the exact same year. Mr. Valinas was not the biggest believer of these spirits. He did know about the reports coming into the house. He was fully aware, but he did not really pay much attention to the stories for the most part. Although, though, he was quick to admit that the house uh, was very much prone to creaking and making sounds on its own. So that could possibly solve some of the sounds and the noises and the supposed footsteps that people were hearing during tours, uh, during visits to the location as being chalked up as quote-unquote old home sounds. That being said... It does not mean that all of the spirits within the Balroy have technically moved on because his wife, along with several friends, have also claimed to witness that spirit of a young boy, similar to the sightings of Stephen back in the day, roaming about the property. While talking in the living room, two of their guests had a sudden urge to both turn around into the dining room, and they claimed they witnessed a young boy walking around. 
Now, at this time, both of the Valinas kids had been up in bed for several hours, and they would have heard them coming down the stairs again due to the house making so many noises. At one point, Miss uh, Valinas claimed that she saw the reflection of a young blonde boy in the mirror, only for her to turn around and no one be there when behind her. Furthermore, reports of a non-existent car... <laughs> can also be heard coming up the driveway. So this spectral car has never actually been seen. It has only ever been uh, heard. It is essentially a distant, very distinct sound of a car pulling up into the driveway. It's sort of like, you know, sort of loitering there for a moment, like turning off. But there is no car in the driveway when anyone looks there. It is also noted that it is very hard for plants to stay alive uh, within the residence. Blackouts are also very often occurring. However, um, this is very much random. And the motion sensor alarm in the foyer is tripped at night despite no one being downstairs. I will mention though for the blackouts, that sort of just tends to happen. I feel like a lot, especially within the city, like... You could just randomly have a blackout every now and then. Like, the internet will go out, the lights will just go out. Like, you just have them. So I don't know how much of that actually gets chalked up to spirits. But I will just preface that by saying that I've been in Philly long enough to know that random blackouts just tend to happen. So the final two, in fact, uh, this being the motion sensor and the random blackouts... Uh, they actually do attract the police every now and then, who on occasions, uh, they, you know, especially for the alarms, they take it rather serious. They, you know, if someone believes that someone's entering their home due to the alarm going off. But this sort of visit became so frequent, however, that especially during the blackout moments, the conclusion for the police reports would oftentimes just simply read, ghost like that's it they would they would just know that hey this is just something that happens it's going to come back in a moment we don't really need to look into the blackout the valinas do not believe that there are any remaining ghosts and if they are actually present they do believe that they are not actually malevolent in any way uh, they do see the Bowery as their new home. They've very much settled down. Uh, again, this is all coming from the William Penn article. Despite this, however, they did bring in a uh, Catholic priest. They are Catholic themselves, and they performed a blessing to the location. Just a small little fun fact uh, to help wrap this up, as there is nothing else to really learn from the Bowery. I would love to continue my research, but I truly think that across these two episodes... I really managed, or I should say we really managed, to touch upon nearly, if not all, of the key points of this incredible location. There is, however, one last little thing that I will be saving for Patreon because it doesn't really fit well into the two-episode structure. And for the most part, I feel as though it could really be its own little mini-episode. And this is the, I believe we mentioned it in the first episode. If not, that's on me. There is a supposed, I believe it's from the LA Times or from the New York Times, uh, of a reporter and his crew who visited the Balleroy during, you know, the hype of uh, what's going on, all the sightings that George was reporting. And during the tour, and I guess should say visit, they took several photos, and a lot of them are... I guess, became notorious as being 
actual photos of an apparition or sightings of the spirit in the home. And I'm going to be discussing those. I'm going to be discussing them um, with some of the information that I have discovered and as well as some of the analysis that I've gotten from uh, some friends of mine who are... Uh, they either study photography or they are, you know, professional photographers themselves who have knowledge of all this stuff, who have done very similar things themselves. And some of the information that they were able to glean by just me showing them the photo and giving no context to it. So I want to talk about that. It's going to be its own little separate thing. I want to be posting that over on Patreon as a part of the sort of bonus content that I kind of want to roll out with certain topics. Things that are not really attached to the overall structure and the script that I provide, but are definitely interesting and I would like to provide to you guys. So with that, we're actually going to wrap it up. Um, I do hope you guys enjoyed the coverage of the Balroy Mansion. I hope that you guys learned a lot. Uh, Today's, I apologize for it being so delayed in its uh, release, but it was definitely something interesting and I hope to get back onto a normal schedule so that this sort of stuff doesn't happen again, especially for a two-parter. That's really on me. But if you guys are interested and you would like to help support the podcast, you can do so by checking out the Patreon. There is a $1, $3, and $5 tier list that provides you with additional special content, uh, monthly episodes, additional sources, and information that I have found throughout my research, and lots of other goodies. And if you can't do that financially, believe me, I'm definitely in the same boat myself. You can definitely do so by just simply leaving a review over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you guys listen to, or sharing it with a friend. And if you want to learn some more behind-the-scenes stuff or wish to stay updated on when episodes are being released or sneak peeks for topics, uh, you can do so by checking out Realm of Unknown over on Twitter or Instagram. And you can send your own stories and feedback at realmofunknown at gmail.com. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed listening, and I cannot wait to see you guys for the next episode. And remember to stay spooky.